Welcome back to MERS Monday for more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. In this week's edition of MERS Monday, how does Michigan State University make its students feel safe returning to campus this week in the wake of last week's deadly shooting? MSU trustee Dennis Denno shares his thoughts on that and gun violence in general. Retired legislative staffer Bruce Timmons shares his observations on the history of Michigan's full-time legislature and immediate effect. He said only one lawmaker seems to care about protecting the sanctity of the institution. Finally, Chris Edwards of Western Michigan University talks about how artificial intelligence will change the way lawmaking and legislating is done. And hear what happens when the MERS team tries to create a bill using AI. Now, here's MERS editor Kyle Malin. Thank you, Mark Bayshore. We're going to dive right into this week's podcast by talking about the subject that uh, everybody's been talking about the last week here and joining us uh, to share uh, his thoughts, uh, Michigan State University trustee Dennis Denno. Uh, Dennis, uh, new on the role here as a trustee, and uh, this is a tough way to, to start things off for you. Tell me how this last week here has been for you. Yeah, thank thank you, Kyle. Um, I mean, it's been hard. It's been hard for the entire Spartan community, you know. Um, my wife and I, my wife Raina and I were on campus the day after the shooting all day. You know, we talked to uh, the families who lost their loved ones. We were just on campus, myself and three other trustees, uh, just trying to offer some leadership, some compassion. Um, you know, many of us trustee-wise were at the vigil Wednesday. Um, you know, just trying to be there for everybody and trying to see what we could do to help. Was there a consistent theme or anything that you kept hearing from the the folks who lost loved ones or or had obviously kids on campus at the time? Um, honestly, the, the conversation with the families who lost lost loved ones. Um, was a very private conversation. Um, I wasn't the one who spoke to them. Um, Dr. Rima Vassar, who's our chair, was the one who, who, who talked to them from the board and, and she was great. She's, she's a trained counselor. Um, she was very comforting and very consoling and, and listened. Um, you know, as far as people on campus, I mean, sad, scared, um, confused, upset. Um, just a lot of emotions, right? Yeah. As far as looking ahead, uh, classes will resume this week. How do you assure kids that it's okay, if it's okay, to come back? Uh, what what uh, What's kind of the message to reassure the students that that uh, things are safe? I mean, that's 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 the question, right? And that was a question that this administration not the MSU Board of Trustees came up with, that classes will start Monday. Um, and we'll see how it goes. And there's a lot of students who are very concerned about it. Um, I understand why the administration is doing this. Um, and we'll see, we'll see how it goes. I mean, I know MSU police said they're gonna have more of a presence on campus. Um, I mean, look, MSU is a huge campus, you know, what, hundreds of buildings. Um, you know, hundreds of cameras, uh, a great police department. Um, and, and, and so, you know, you do your best to, to comfort uh, people. You do your best to make the campus uh, as safe as possible. 
as far as uh, assuring people that things that, that this could be just a one-off, but do you, do you see any kind of changes in security or anything else going forward with Michigan State? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and, and um, it's a lot of thoughts on that, a lot of discussion on that. You know, I, I want to give a, a shout out to MSU Police Chief Marlon Lynch um, for his leadership. I want to give a shout out to all the police departments um, who are on the scene. I, I want to say the Lansing Police had over 90 people on campus. They were one of the first on campus. Um, my understanding is... Um, Genesee County Sheriff uh, Swanson was on campus with his team. Oakland County Sheriff Bouchard said anything, anything MSU needed, with, you know, he made available. Livingston County Police, obviously East Lansing Police, um, and there's departments I'm missing the first responders. Um, and there's going to, you know, there's going to be a, a debrief. There's going to be a review of what what was done. There's going to be a look at what can we do to make MSU safer. Um, you know, is it more locks? Is it more cameras? Is it more security? Um, you know, what, what, what can be done? Um, and so we'll wait and see what law enforcement has, um, you know, has to say. What do you think the future of Berkey Hall and the union are? Um, no, that's a great question. Um, my pie in the sky idea from a long time ago was, wouldn't it be cool to take Berkey Hall, completely gut it and turn it into housing for like senior citizens? Um, hmm. Um, but, uh, that's just me. Right. I, I, I don't know. Um, that's something that the board of trustees wants to be in that conversation with, um, it's going to be very, very hard for some people to ever go back into Berkey hall, to ever go back into the union. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know what we're going to wait and see what, what the ideas are. What kind of statement taking a look at just this incident here at MSU, it's not an isolated incident. We've had gun violence and incidents since then, obviously prior to, um, but what do you, what's kind of your assessment on the state of gun violence in the country? Yeah, I, I want to be careful not to politicize this. Um, I think, I think for me, and, and, and I don't know, people are going to get upset with this. I mean, I think it's a question of, you know, do we have enough mental health services for, for people? Um, are, are guns too easily accessible, too readily available? Um, I'm not a pro-gun guy. I'm not an anti-gun guy. Um, but I do think we need to look at our policies. I mean, we're one of the only countries in the world where we have these mass shootings happen over and over and over again. Um, and I, I, I just think we need to, to have a serious discussion about that stuff. And, and, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I wonder if we got to do we got to bring back more state mental hospitals? Uh, obviously, we went away from those in the 90s, but they were a place for people to go if they had issues. And do we have enough of those facilities or do we have enough options for people who are troubled and their parents or their caregivers or whoever don't know what to do with them? Are there enough services available to, to help folks who are troubled? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we shouldn't forget that we closed our mental health hospitals under, you know, Governor John Engler, and that was a horrible, horrible decision. Um, and it's really unfair and unrealistic to expect family members to care uh, for uh, their loved ones who have uh, mental health issues, especially serious mental health issues. Um, so, I mean, yeah, we definitely need to spend more money on, on mental health care. 
Um, I mean, kudos to Michigan State for providing counseling uh, to everyone on campus. Um, but there's no question, we, we've, we've completely underfunded mental health in the, in, in the past few decades. And, and you know what, I just want to say, I mean, it's, it's okay not to feel okay. Um, but, you know, people need to take care of themselves. People need, if you, if, if you're, if you have issues, you know, you need, it's, it's okay to talk to somebody. Um, it's okay to talk to a counselor. It's okay to seek help. Um, you deserve it. Um, and that's what, that's what, you know, it's one of the, one of the things people need to do. And it seems like we're, we're stuck as far as a legislature and maybe as, as a Congress as well, we get stuck into a debate about gun access and and what if you should store your gun and under lock and key in your house or if there should be these red flag laws if there should be um you know a, a, some type of uh, expanded background check when you purchase your weapon and it, it seems like we get stuck on these issues and it becomes an either or and in the meantime it just seems like the wheels keep spinning and really nothing gets done that's right. just my personal commentary. Just, it, I mean, we've had these discussions over and over and over again, and yet it just kind of seems like we're stuck in neutral as, as a society, as a country, where things are happening around us, but there's been no real substantive reaction. Right. Well, I'm always careful comparing one thing to the other, but, you know, fighting the gun lobby in this country reminds me a lot of in the past decades fighting the tobacco industry in the sense of both industries were making millions and millions of dollars uh, on something that was very detrimental to uh, Americans' health. Um, and, you know, it took, it took decades to uh, curb the tobacco industry. I mean, remember even something as simple as banning smoking indoors was incredibly controversial. And now today we don't even think twice about it. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, doing what you talked about seems like a simple fix. Hopefully the Michigan legislature passes those, those bills and, and the governor signs them. Um, and that, that would actually be pretty historic for, this, for, for Michigan government to pass bills like that. Well, and it, it seems like with this type of leadership who have gotten elected, that would seem like the next step, that that's probably where things are going to go at, at this point. But I liked your comparison, though, about the tobacco industry. One of them, and, and, and I'm and I'm right there with you as far as you got to be careful about making comparisons, but I've, I've been thinking another one is drunk driving. Yep. Growing up, drunk driving was a major problem. And even today, I don't like driving after a certain period of time in the night. And I'm always leery and I'm always looking at these cars thinking, is this guy hammered? Because, you know, it's one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning and you worry about those things. But when we were growing up, that was what you were worried about is drunk drivers and the legislature cracked down and there was a lot more publicity about it. You know, don't drink and drive. The, the bars started getting conscious about it. Friends started getting conscious about it. And we just don't see it as much as we used to. Yeah, that's a great comparison, Kyle. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, state government, federal government moves slowly. That's the way it's designed, right? And we're a society that expects instant gratification and instant fixes and it doesn't happen that way. It's just something that you need to continuously fight for and build coalitions around and to make the changes uh, you want to, to see happen. Well, anyway, well, I appreciate you coming on and, and talking about that. And it's it's a President's Day weekend. And, you know, I just kind of naturally think about you during President's Day because you're the only person I know who has visited basically every presidential homestead in this country. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> and I'm and I'm mildly jealous in a kind of a geeky sort of way that you've been able to pull something like that off. <laughs> um, and I know that we've had some real heavy topics that we're talking about here. So just to kind of lighten things up here as we as we close out this interview, your favorite presidential homestead, Dennis Deno. Wow, you really put me on the spot here. I was not expecting this question. <laughs> Well, this should be caught. This should be right off the top of your head, Dennis, because I know you've had to compare these homesteads because you visited. Uh, how many have you visited? Oh, I numerous, numerous. I, I visited most of the I think I visited all but one of the presidential libraries slash museums, uh, a lot of their burial sites. Um, homestead, homestead. I'll, I'll give you one off the top of my head. Um, Martin Van Buren, number eight. Um, <laughs> my wife and I were in uh, that part of New York, uh, I guess upstate New York, and uh, not a surprise to anyone. We were the basically the only people visiting Martin Van Buren's home, <laughs> and, uh, and very underrated president um, in, in, in many respects, positively and negatively. And the uh, the the tour guide, who I guess was a park ranger, was shocked that I knew anything about Martin Van Buren. Um, and it was a kind of a cool home. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll give a shout out to number eight, Martin Van Buren, off the top of my head. All right. Yeah, I don't really have any correlation at all to Martin Van Buren, other than I know that he was number eight. And didn't we have a big economic crash during his administration? Yeah, we did. We had a panic. Um, yeah. didn't, didn't help out. Didn't help his presidency out. Uh, he was the last, if I'm not mistaken, he was the last president not to have English as his native language. He was Dutch, right? Yes. Yes. Wow. So make West Michigan proud. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess we'll 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 stop the nerd out session here and we're going to a completely different nerdy subject here with our next guest. Uh, you'll want to listen to that uh, with uh, Bruce Timmon uh, nerding out on IE. So thank you much, Dennis Steno. Appreciate you making the time here with us. Hey, thank you. Joining us now for the podcast is Bruce Timmons. He is a longtime veteran, now retired staffer for the legislature, in particular the House of Representatives, who has stayed involved and has stayed interested in the goings on here in the Michigan legislature. Bruce, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much for inviting me. Why don't we start with a little bit about your background? I didn't realize that you started the last time we had a special session of the legislature. That is correct. 1967-68. And uh, tell us uh, then who you worked for briefly and then when you retired. Well, I started off with an internship um, in that, that period of time. Um, the big issues then were creating the district court and uh, open housing. That was now what, some 55 years ago. Um, but after the internship, I ended up working for the uh, Democratic chairs of House Judiciary for 12 years. Uh, sometimes there's a picture into which one does not fit. I ended up with a legislative service bill drafting legislation for two years and was invited to join the House Republican Policy Office where I stayed for 30 years before I retired in 2012. I had the opportunity to work with a lot of good people on both sides of the aisle um, that entire time and that includes their staff as well. All right. Well, Let's uh, let's also mention you have a law degree as well. 
That's correct. Yes. I started the internship while I was waiting for the bio results. <laughs> so you were around during the last throws of the part-time legislature. Yes, the very last, yes. And was was the transition from the part-time legislature to a full-time legislature, was that because of the Constitution, the new Constitution, or was that just kind of a change in philosophy among the legislators who were serving? That was due to Speaker Bill Ryan. When he took over in 69, it became full-time. And what was kind of the mindset? Why did he want to make it full-time? Um, number one, they had things they wanted to do. Uh, they started uh, increasing staff. When I started, there was uh, one secretary for two House members, and he started not only having a secretary, but also an aide. Um, and he wasn't about to let the governor determine um, a special session agenda, so legislature stayed in session uh, January to December each year. How was that received by and large, from what you remember? by legislators um since the democrats were in control they they accepted that and were happy with it i uh, except obviously they took regularly two months in the summer um it was kind of interesting on the um the so-called hunting thanksgiving break because there was a time in there when they met the three days before thanksgiving no kidding and they met uh, monday night regularly through thursday and for uh, and in the early 70s, they often came in on Friday morning. So mm -hmm. they were meeting uh, between three and five days a week. It wasn't not the three days a week stuff that we've seen for several years now. Well, I wanted to bring you on specifically to talk about immediate effect and how immediate effect was recorded. So when they were in a part-time legislature arrangement, my understanding is that immediate effect was rarely used because it didn't necessarily have to be used much if you adjourned in May or June? Um, hard to tell because I, I kind of the biggest issue um, prior to the time I got there was the income tax. And I don't really have any, I have no recollection or memory of the um, the regular session of 67 because I wasn't there. Okay. And much of what went through on the legislature the following, I was pretty much wrapped up in the district court bill, which did get immediate effect. And some other legislation, which I, I can't remember some of it, some of that was jury selection and um, administrative procedures act, which ended up getting vetoed. Probably because they talked to the governor's staff and they didn't know it was in it until I told them and they didn't, they vetoed it. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't sell it very well, did you, Bruce? So I wasn't planning to. I was just saying, you know, you better, better be aware of this. And they were, they vetoed it and they came back with some changes the next uh, session and got enacted. So as far as immediate effect goes, um, at the time when they recorded immediate effect in the House and in the Senate, uh, what's your recollection on how that was done? I don't recall it being a big deal. Um, I don't recall this being a big deal until it got into uh, the 1980s. Now, when you say it wasn't a big deal, do you mean, but how was it recorded, though? Was it a voice vote? Was it just kind of looking around and saying, OK, well, we've got well my time in the house was more direct because I was on the floor a lot of that time, much more so even than later. But it, again, both in both chambers, when it was asked for, um, there was no, it wasn't contested. And so there wasn't a roll call, it wasn't a request for a roll call. Um, there were times I think there were uh, requests and they got 
that was honored and they took it. I see. And so when you say it wasn't a big deal, nobody made an issue out of it. So if they said, right. okay, yeah. we have two thirds. All right, we've got two thirds. Good. The minority party just kind of accepted it. But when there was yeah. a roll call vote, the roll call, they always got it. I, as far as I remember, until okay. the 1980s. And it started when um, David J., um, notorious, he hadn't become quite so notorious at that time, but he offered amendments on welfare issues that embarrassed the Democrats. And the leadership did not want them having to take tough votes um, because that could not play well back home in their districts. And so they stopped recognizing him on amendments to speak on them or to ask for a roll call vote. Uh, and that, that eventually spread to IE. How much or how prevalent was David Jay's amendments? I didn't cover that issue. A colleague of mine did. And a colleague of mine wrote some of those amendments. Okay. Uh, and that really stirred up a hornet's nest. The Democrat, Republicans loved to have them up there so they could vote on them. Uh, but uh, I don't know who the speaker was at that particular time, whether it was still Ryan or it was uh, um, Owen mm -hmm. or Krim. It would have been Krim probably before that because Krim was still, um, I can't remember because I, I left the judiciary when Krim was speaker in 81. Uh, it, may anyway, it may have been under Owen. So at what point did they just kind of gavel through immediate effect then and, and kind of run over minority? Um, again, the number of contentious issues were fewer in those days because people were more willing to work together and you didn't have that kind of a contest um, when things got through. Oh, I see. So um, that's why IE wasn't a big a deal. And it was, um, I think both the House and Senate, they rap on the mics to get their attention. And usually it was a show of hands. And a lot of times like hands were, a lot of hands were raised. They didn't count them, but uh, um, got a pretty good sense that the chamber was supportive of it. Um, so it just wasn't a big deal. It was when they started getting to the more contentious stuff and trying to get it, i.e., it was a little, that became a bigger battle. But under the rules at that time, and they were certainly used, it allowed written motions. And so what the Republicans would do is they would sign a bunch of blank uh, sheets in the um, caucus room during the caucus. And when the issue came up on the floor, they would fill in the blank and give it to the clerk. And that was a request for a roll call vote. And you that's only need one fifth in order to get a request for a roll call vote. That's and correct. so that was always honored. As far as I remember, that, I believe that was honored. And but keep in mind for the things like IE, it was considered in the House a renewable motion. So there were times where you got the first by writing or otherwise, you got the record roll call the first time, which may have been negative, and immediately there was another motion for IE and it was gaveled through. Mm, I see. So as far as as far as the, the rules then and, and the strict adherence to the Constitution, uh, over time, you you would say that it's eroded over time. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, it did. And I think the, uh, the, the most recent um, extension, unfortunately, um, was in 2013, at least I don't recall it having been amended in 2012, but at the beginning of the 2011-12 session, it was still had a written motion provision in the rules. But in 2013, they took out the written motion. The only way you can 
uh, Ray's emotion is to be recognized. And mm. if the presiding officer, speaker, speaker pro tem or whoever, takes a blind eye to you and you're in the minority, you have no way to make a motion for media, for a roll call vote or for IE. That's been a problem for the last decade. And so even though the Constitution says that one-fifth of the members could request a motion be made, um, that's been ignored. How is that How is that able to stay constitutional, what the House is doing? Because people like the Attorney General and the Supreme Court say it's up to the legislature to determine its own rules, notwithstanding the Constitution. What's your thoughts on that? I think it's detrimental to the legislative process, and I think it has helped erode the um, respect within the body. I don't think members respect each other like they used to, and they don't respect the institution like they used to. Before term limits, there was a high degree of respect among legislators for themselves and for the institution. Term limits eroded that badly. On the Senate side, you've had a different situation, and um, I happened to see recently a report um, tributed to the Citizens Research Council, um, which noted that when Candler was um, the Secretary of the Senate, he insisted that there be a count. When a motion was made for IE, that there was a count. Mm -hmm. And that has continued up till now. And I know that there's a resolution to change that, that yep. the electronic voting board may be used to count immediate effect, which yep. then, you know makes it subjective. What's your thoughts on that? I think it's a bad idea. And it'll, it'll basically eliminate um, the constitutional provisions, both for requesting a roll call vote it's ignoring that entirely. There's no way to, to then um, honor that. And then the, it, it also erodes the two-thirds uh, vote for I It makes a joke out of it. Now, one could say, you know, it is the body. Uh, it, it is the majority body. They can determine their own rules. If they want to follow whatever rules they want to follow, what's wrong with that? Uh, when it collides with the Constitution, it makes a mockery of the Constitution. Then I think it's wrong. understand. Um, what again on the House side, that's been um, both parties have been involved in that. It's a, but it started with the Democrats on the in the 1980s. So how do where do we go from here, Bruce? How would you what what's kind of your solution? Is there a solution to try and, and get back to the standards set forth in the Constitution? Uh, apparently, there isn't any way. It's going to take some good faith on part of members. And I don't see a whole lot of it right now um, with the parties being as divided as they are and determined to run over the other side, even if it's a one vote margin. There just isn't a, a comedy. There isn't a respect of the, of the other party or their other people. Um, and that goes both ways. I mean, I've seen that on the, on the House side. It, it has been both ways. Now they're going to extend it to the Senate. Well, dire prediction here. Any, any final thoughts here before we let you go, Bruce? Well, I think... Um, there's only one person consistently over the last decade who's had an interest in the res respect of the legislature on this issue, and that's uh, Senator Edmund Groom. He's offered I, a couple of proposals to alter the IE issue, particularly to keep appropriations out of that so that there isn't an issue uh, for IE on appropriations. Um, he's the only one that's ventured forth on it. I tested, when he introduced that it, uh, several years ago, I testified in support of it. Well, and his proposal is uh, kind of it kind of 
makes itself relevant in a full-time legislature in that it says 90 days after a bill is signed into law, it becomes law. You don't have to wait until 90 days after the legislative session is over. And so it, it almost kind of negates the need for immediate effect in, in, with the exception of special circumstances. Yeah, and um, they do occur. I think certainly when that provision was written into the Constitution in 1961-62, the legislature was part-time. So if it didn't have IE, it was going to take effect like over the summer. Yeah. It wasn't a long period of time. It was after it became full-time that it became much more critical. Otherwise, if you didn't have IE, you might pass something in April and it couldn't take effect for a year. Bruce Timmons, longtime legislative aide. We appreciate you joining us here on the Maroos Monday podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Join us now on the podcast is Chad Edwards. He is the co-director of communications and social robotic labs for Western Michigan University. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I look forward to the conversation today. Our own Andrew Miniger is here with us too. He came to me the other day and he said that artificial intelligence, AI, has begun to make an impact or could have an impact in the field of lobbying and lawmaking. Tell me how that's even possible. That's a great question. We have to first think about what's going on right now in the fields of artificial intelligence. We have hit a major change in the platform. Prior to November 22, we would tell our students, we would tell our labs, every week there was some new thing in artificial intelligence, social robotics. When GPT went out to the public in November of 2022, it was a complete game changer. The masses had the opportunity to experience generative AI, AI that can take various levels of text and put them together and seems like a reasonable order and make sense and give information. And the, I think the public's imagination with AI rapidly changed that day. And we've just seen that massive growth in the last two months and that since that release of GPT. I think we should go back and define what exactly is artificial intelligence and what is it used for? Oh, that's a great question. Artificial intelligence is simply mathematics, statistics to help us make predictions and understand patterns of data. We often think about AI as something from Hollywood, whether it's HAL from Space Odyssey or Terminator or Bicentennial Man, when in reality, it's simply computer code working on algorithms, trying to solve problems and taking in lots of amount of data and looking for predictions that we may not see otherwise. The problem with the name artificial intelligence is it represents sort of a black box. If there's some type of computer technology out there, we just call that AI. Like Siri, Siri, for example, in your iPhone, a lot of people will call that artificial intelligence. And it is, but it's really a spoken dialogue system. And so under the large umbrella of artificial intelligence, you have things like large language models, which is what GPT is, spoken dialogue systems like Amazon Alexa or Apple Siri. Um, and so you really have to sort of hone in on what you're specifically talking about under that umbrella of artificial intelligence. But right now it's capturing everybody's imagination because the general public is able to see what they can do with just simple word prompts. So what is chat GTP and why is it so game changing? That's a great question. Chat GPT is built upon a large language model. 
which is a very complicated statistical mathematical process, which takes words and then builds together words into sentences, sentences into paragraphs that will produce what seems to most people as an adequate answer for a question or a task you might give ChatGPT. GPT has blown up. It only took five days for GPT to reach 1 million users. It took Facebook um, 10 months to reach 1 million users. It took Netflix three and a half years. The closest thing to GPT we've seen is in social media, which is Instagram, which only took like a few months to reach a million users. And so the audience, the public's imagination of what this could be used for has really sort of taken off. And I think what's really interesting right now is we're still in that play phase. And so if you Google, what can I do with GPT? People are making romantic poems, they're writing horror scripts, they're writing funny resignation letters to the boss they don't like. But once all that play starts to sort of die down a little bit, we're gonna see what the real work that people can implement GPT into their workplace, into their lives as another tool that they might use for productivity or whatever they decide. So as far as legislators and lobbyists go, what are some of the technical applications of this technology? Technically, GPT could write press releases. It could do background research for legislation or lobbyists. Um, there's a couple of issues though we have to be mindful of. Since GPT was just released, its training data only goes up to 2021. So if you were to ask GPT something in the last year, it's not gonna get it right. And you also have to be mindful that GPT doesn't actually know anything. It's just putting together words in ways that make sense based on its massive amounts of training data. And so if you use GPT to write a press release, maybe that's okay, but it's only a tool. It then still takes a skilled writer, a, still, a skilled professional to go in and say, edit, make sure the sources are correct, add sources. Um, double check, do fact finding, do all that sort of media literacy things we teach our students about understanding the world and apply that to GPT's information that it puts out as an output. Where did GTP come from? GPT is from a company called OpenAI. They had some silicone type investors three, four years ago. Um, Microsoft has recently put a lot of money into GPT. And so Microsoft in the last few weeks announced that their search engine Bing will now have GPT incorporated into it. Um, and at the same time, Google's jumping into the game with their version called Bard. Um, and so when you see Microsoft and Google jumping into this generative AI space, things are going to change. We used to tell our students, for example, that it is likely in your career within five or six years, you might have an AI team member in your work group at your company or your career, wherever you are. We're now telling students it is almost guaranteed you'll have some type of AI assistant when you graduate in five months. That's how much of a shift this has been. You mean they're going to have AI assistants helping them out? Exactly. That's what GPT can do. Once the training data, now GPT was just released to the public, you know, a few months ago, give it 12 months, it'll be a new release, there'll be updated training data, they'll have competition from BARD and Microsoft will help GPT, you certainly could use GPT as a tool to help you find information. We used to think about the internet as I'm going to go to Google and search something right so. Um, but now it's really not like that it's it's going to end up being I'm going to go to the internet and I'm going to ask something. And I'm going to ask it of a generative AI system that's going to give me answers. We still have to apply those same critical skills to understanding and evaluating the credibility of that information, but it's going to change our relationship with how we get information online. 
Could you go over some of the things that lawmakers should be looking out for when it comes to AI? And it seems like there's a lot of good, but it could be a double-edged sword. And there's some things that they really need to get a jump on. Oh, that's a great point. We first have to look to the European Union and what they've done with the AI Act. The AI Act and the European Union, and it's already passed, says that there's, we have to look at different levels of risk when it comes to artificial intelligence. And so the first level they have is something called unacceptable risk. And this would be like governments running scoring type systems for how much of a citizen you are. The European Union said absolutely no way. Then they looked at sort of the second tier of risk and it's called high risk applications. So using generative AI or AI in general to read someone's resume and to rank them. Um, in the United States, we are woefully behind, as always, in terms of technology. We build the technology, and then we build the regulations and the legislation, legislation behind it after the fact. As government in the United States, we need to rapidly speed up our legislation and our regulation of AI. There's lots of serious problems. First, when you think about deep fakes, where you could fake an audio, a video of a politician giving a speech, Take the idea of a deep fake, a deep video, a fake video or fake audio, and then combine that with a generative AI system. Now your deep fake is able to produce complete speeches with a couple of clicks of buttons and some code. That is dangerous. Wait a minute now. So with AI technology, you could actually fake a speech from a politician? It already happens now in some large degree. If you take the combination of deep fake video and audio, and you can combine that with the generative AI of text systems like GPT that can write speeches, combine those together with a couple of clicks of a button, it would be hard to tell, if not now, but here in a few months or maybe a year or so, which one's the real president giving a speech. And that's dangerous for democracy, that's dangerous for governments, that's dangerous for industry and corporations. Could you go back in time and reproduce a speech or copy or something of that nature? You, you probably could. You'd have to have a lot of, I think, I'm not in that field, but I think you'd have to have a lot of video of like the person speaking to sort of recreate that. But okay. yeah, that's, that's probably quite doable. So uh, I remember asking you if ChatGTP and Amazon Alexa had a baby, what do you think it'd look like? I think that would be an interesting thing. I mean, it's almost already there, if not. I'm quite, I mean, everyone assumes Amazon is working on its own generative system. Alexa has a smaller version of it with its spoken dialogue, so you can engage with Alexa on more of an interpersonal communication level. But I think sort of the more even bigger question is when you take generative AI, this text-based AI, and then put it in a social robot. Then you now have this embodied presence that's able to give speeches and give press releases to give information based on its generative AI large language models. You said you were most excited about it becoming disembodied when it comes out of the machine and goes into a robot, and then it could become a total assistant. Exactly. It could become a total assistant, a physical assistant, a text-based assistant, a verbal assistant, however the original embodiment was built. And we have to be very careful there in terms of legislation as well. We know in the research there are things called dark patterns or cuteness, right? We all think kittens are cute. Even if you don't like cats, there's no one in the world that will deny the cuteness of a kitten, right? The same thing happens in robotics. 
when we're building, when people are building robots, they sometimes will put a cuteness factor in. I'm not talking about like Terminator or any of the mean robots we see in Hollywood, but these social robots. Imagine if you had the cuteness of a social robot with the generative AI power of GPT. That could persuade audiences to do good stuff and horrible stuff. And so we have to be very mindful of what we do with this power. So basically you would have BB-8 from Star Wars saying, oh no, this is a good thing. Exactly. BB-8 could be telling you about some legislation that would be horrible for democracy, but because it's in BB-8 and it's a cute robot, some people would be persuaded. So do people purchase this AI technology or is it free or how do people get their hands on it? That's a great question. Right now, GPT is free. And it's so free? it's completely free. They just announced a $20 subscription fee last week. The problem is with both the free model and the subscription model, their servers are being hit so hard by so many new users. You, ha you have to sort of try a few times to be able to get into the system. But GPT is also spurring other companies. Jasper AI, for example, is based on the GPT model. And it's a pure subscription model. It's like $70 a month. But it adds a few more features to help you. It changes the way it looks a little bit on the screen. And so there's lots of economic opportunities here, but also potential pitfalls as well. I mean, I think we, if you might have saw last week, I think it was Forbes and Wired Magazine. Um, Forbes, for sure, had some problems where they were using GPT or generative AI to write some articles and they had some really bad information in those articles. They didn't really fact check it or something went wrong in the process, but you have to be mindful of that issue. So GTP could replace journalists uh, ultimately. I would never hope, I would never want that. And I don't think so either, but it could be a tool for journalists, right? It could help them in some ways do background research. Um, it could help them formulate an argument, maybe help writer's block, develop an outline. I, I think it's okay for a tool like that. I'm not against banning this kind of technology because people wanted to ban the calculator. They wanted to ban the computer because they thought that's not learning, right? Well, GPT has got some problems right now. We have to worry about the training data. That's a major problem. Is it biased? Is it sexist? Is it racist? So we have to constantly have these open transparency systems in place to understand how it's producing its information and its knowledge. But at the same time, it's a tool that we can use effectively if we're, if we're watching out for the potential pitfalls. So what's your advice to legislatures as far as approaching the technology like GTP or AI in general? I, my advice for legislators is they need to talk to a lot of different kinds of people. If you're only talking to the developers, the people developing the software or doing the code, you're only going to get one aspect. They need to be talking to technology ethics folks, ethics of AI. They need to be talking to social scientists to understand how GPT and generative AI will work in homes and relationships and the workplace and to get a broader perspective. If we only take the perspective of the development, we get into that same problem where we develop the technology, but then we don't have any understanding of the problems or what we should do about it in, the, in a government's assembly, for example. And so they need to be having a widespread conversations with a whole host of people to understand it and the societal implications. Have you seen any states that are doing anything on this right now? Not to my knowledge. I mean, I would guess maybe Massachusetts, but that would only be because of MIT, Harvard, where a lot of the AI folks are. But I can't imagine there's any state legislation, legislator or legislation actually taking this seriously right now. You said earlier how woefully behind the United States is in dealing with some of these things with technology. 
they're only now dealing with some of the issues uh, in social media, and that's, what, 20 years old? This is something new happening right now, and we're already behind on it. That is correct. We are behind. I, a few months ago, the White House did release sort of a template on how to start understanding AI at the federal level, but that's about as far as the United States has gone. So European Union would be our best sort of model. And the same way the European Union is the model for privacy rights on the internet, right? And cookie development and transparent algorithm and the ability to delete yourself online. In the United States, we have none of those protections or rights in social media or online on the internet. And so we've got to start jumping on that and jumping on this new AI systems. It feels like we're in a movie or something. It, it, it feels like we're in a movie. It feels like sci-fi or something. Is there a movie or a book or something that you could draw a parallel to that kind of maybe was a precursor or gave us a hint that this was on the way? Oh, that's a great question. I can give you an historical event I could compare this to. Okay. Um, and people might disagree with this, but I think it's sort of true. What the Wright brothers did at Kitty Hawk, generative AI, this is its moment. In fact, I, maybe, I would maybe suggest this is a bigger moment than the first flight. But it's incredible when you think about how we went from Kitty Hawk in the early 1900s to landing on the moon 50, 60 years later. I can't even fathom what generative AI will be doing in 50 years or the potentials and the problems. They'll have new problems, new solutions, right? But at, at the same time, this is a groundbreaking development, at least for the, in the public's imagination, for sure. Researchers have been working on this and known about this. But now that the public has access to this kind of tool, it definitely changes the game. Well, thank you for sharing this information. I, I don't know if I should be excited or troubled or just mildly uneasy or what. This is, uh, this is a little bit mind-blowing for me. I like to say melioristic, uh, hope on a rope. We always look for the possibilities, but we have to be mindful and deadly serious about the consequences. Chad Edwards, he is the co-director of communications and social robotics labs at Western Michigan University. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. All right, Andrew Miniger, this is some wild stuff here that you've brought to my attention. I had no idea this even existed. And you have some AI pulled up on your laptop right now. Yeah, I actually have the AI that we were talking about, the chat GTP. Uh, I have it here and uh, I can make it create a law or make a press release if you want. W what would you like to do? All right, so you just pulled it up on your browser. Yep. All right, so this is just on your internet browser. What yep. do you do, Google AI or Google something? Google chat GTP. And boom, there it is. And then you have to sign up. It's just a little bit, you know, you add your name and a email address, just like signing up for Facebook or Twitter, pretty much. All right, so this is President's Day weekend. So if you were to ask this AI who were the first 10 presidents in the United States, it would go ahead and do that. Absolutely. But you could really do that with Google, too. That's not really pushing this yeah. to where it where it needs to be. It, where, where it needs to be is, can this thing create a law? What's what's one of the big issues that's going on right now? Guns, I would think. Yeah? So, well, so you're saying you could create a law right now using this AI technology to, I don't know, let's just say ban assault weapons, just for example. Absolutely. All right, do it. I want to see you do this. All righty. In this bar here, we have a generator response and type in, um, let's see, create a Michigan, you want House or Senate? Uh, house. Michigan House bill that would ban assault weapons 
in the state. Now, there it goes. I ask it. Now, it says, as an AI language model, I cannot create an official legislation. However, here's a sample draft of a Michigan House bill that would ban assault weapons in the state. An act. And then it is actually creating this bill right now. Short title, uh, the act shall be known as, cited as the Michigan Assault Weapons Ban. Then it gives the definitions, assault weapon, uh, assault weapon meaning the following, a semi-automatic rifle gives all of the, uh, you know, pistol grip, forward grip, folding, telescoping, scope, grenade launcher. I, I'm watching over your shoulder here. It's actually giving definitions with yeah. a letter and everything. I mean, absolutely. this looks like a legit bill. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's creating it right now as, as, we're, as we're talking. This is amazing. It's almost like you just, you know, it's just kicking out a recipe or something. Yep. Pretty much. And I mean, you can do this. You, you can have it. And here's the prohibitions. So now it's got section three on section three prohibitions. A person shall not manufacture, sell, purchase, or possess an assault weapon. I mean, that's the short and skinny of it, right? And then it, it's defined what an assault weapon is. Yeah. So this isn't just like, I mean, anybody can say, we're going to put a bill into law and say we're going to ban an assault weapon. No. This has actually got definitions, numbers, and it's got what? Exceptions. Section? It's giving exceptions. Like, give me an example. So the exceptions. This act does not apply to the following. Firearms that are lawfully possessed at the time of the bill's enactment. Firearms that are possessed for hunting or sporting purposes. Firearms that are possessed for collection or display purposes. Wow. Firearms that are possessed by a law enforcement agency. This is unbelievable. How does it do this? I mean, is there like some uh, draft bill or something that it's taken this off of? It's just... It, it's the the name of the chat GTP is it's generative pre-trained transmission. So basically what it's doing is going through all of the information that has been fed it up until the year 2021. So anything anything that has been fed into this, it can draw from and make whatever it wants out of it. So you, you want to create a, a, a new recipe for chicken cacciatore? It'll create it for you. This is unbelievable. All right. Well, I can see now why uh, Chris Edwards was talking about this being a game changer as far as legislating, lobbying, because you could ask it then to give us an example of to why banning assault weapons is a bad idea. You, we could do that. And we yep. could ask it, well, why is banning assault weapons a good idea? And it would give us arguments on both sides of the issue, wouldn't it? Absolutely. It, you know, it. I can have I, I can have it create a press release saying, put a positive spin on why banning assault do weapons it, do it, do is it. okay. Do we'll, we'll do this. All right, so it, it's thinking right now. Okay, what does it got? Here's a sample press release with a positive spin on an assault weapons ban in the state of Michigan. Michigan takes bold action to keep communities safe with statewide assault weapons ban. Lansing, Michigan. And, and it's typing something out right now. What does it say? Just read it. It says, today, the House of Representatives passed a groundbreaking bill that will help protect citizens from tragic consequences of gun violence. The Michigan Assault Weapons Ban, which it actually named the bill, which has now been signed into law, prohibits the sale, purchase, and possession of assault weapons throughout the state. This historic legislation is a vital step toward making Michigan a safe, safer place to live, work, and raise a family. The ban on assault weapons is a critical measure to prevent mass shootings and other forms of gun violence that have caused so much devastation in our communities. 
This is nuts. And now, obviously, the Michigan House didn't pass it. We didn't ask it no. to, to put out a news release like that. But, I mean, an editor can come back and just say that this group is proposing this bill and just go. Absolutely. There. It even gives a quote from uh, State Representative John Doe. Really? Yeah. So it's got like a... It's <laughs> crazy. <laughs> Uh, and you want to know what John Doe said? Uh, obviously, John Doe is not a real person, yeah, right. but you know, he said this law, quote, this law will save lives and make our state a safer place. We can all agree that no one should have access to weapons of war. And this bill helps ensure that our families and communities are safe. End and, quote. And then you said that you could put in something to give us a negative spin on this bill. Absolutely. Uh, all right, we'll do that. Okay, so it is creating a a press release with a negative spin on an assault weapons ban. It's telling me that the the negative spin on a suggestive topic, uh, it's not appropriate for me to create content with a negative spin on a suggestive topic like assault weapons ban. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) It is important to approach all issues with neutral and unbiased perspective. Oh, okay. And to promote constructive dialogue and solutions that benefit society as a whole. I think we just cracked the code I, here. I, I think that it, it didn't like it. Yeah, we, I think we broke the AI, man. We just figured it out. There's well, some positions that even AI can't help you with, I suppose. That, maybe that's like the lesson here. Do you know when I signed up, it said that the AI could be biased. All right. Well, clearly this one's biased in one direction. Well, anyway, thanks for bringing this to our attention here, Andrew. This is uh, really interesting stuff. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the MERS Monday podcast. Special thanks to Dennis Denno for taking time earlier in the podcast, Bruce Timmons, and obviously Chris Edwards. Also, post-audio production of the MERS Monday podcast is by Mark Bayshore Audio in Okemos. Also, thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all our other podcasts. And for Andrew Miniger and the rest of the team here at MERS News, I'm Kyle Malin. Until next week, take care.